1: All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Flowline. Here we are and I have to say, Matt, I want to come out of the gate and say and tell everyone we're recording on July 1st, which means Happy
0: Canada Day. Yes, that monumental day what happens? People sign some paperwork.
1: Yeah, it's like a celebration of, you know, the Confederation of Canada and of like three separate colonies. I don't know. You know what? That's a good question. I need to look this up and I'm ashamed.
0: Because I mean, in America, we go to war, right? It's not just, you know, I feel like Canada was just like with the British, they like shook hands and signs. Of yeah, it was
1: like, hey, life. we're celebrating that we're becoming organized. Like, I think that's what okay. it was. But here it celebrates the anniversary of Canadian Confederation, which occurred on July 1st, 1867, with the passing of the British North American Act, where the three separate colonies of the United States, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick were united into a single dominion within the British Empire called Canada Day. How about it? Yes, yes. I actually forgot about it until this morning.
0: Well but anyway. Happy Canada Day to those who celebrate.
1: <laughs> yes. And you know, as much as I'd like to use this opportunity to talk just about Canada. We're going to actually talk about something that relates a little bit more to what we do. It's about deep water logistics. And it's kind of fitting because this is the first time I've been here at the office and I see rain on the window and we're talking about deep water. So yeah, it just seems like the right thing to talk about. Matt, what do you think?
0: I completely see
1: the connection and agree. (laughs) Nice. Perfect. Well, Matt, you know, at the end of the day, we're always just trying to drill a hole in the ground to produce hydrocarbons. But how we do that, And how we get materials to that location, whether it be on land or on the shelf or deep water, wherever it is, it's all different logistically, you know, conceptually it's the same, but how we actually go about doing that is different. And I just think it makes sense to kind of go through it. And although deep water isn't, you know, blown and going as it is here, you know, on land, it's still worth talking about just in case people do, you know, are curious or just want to kind of get a better grasp on how we do things out there. So. Matt, what would you say right out of the gate is something we need to really consider?
0: I mean, I think just context, normally, you're, we've, we've talked about it in the past, you know, you're circulating, everything's bigger offshore. And then I think the other thing is everything's more expensive. So time is money. And so you're more willing to spend money to reduce time than you would be on land Which, you know, one leads to sort of this pressure to have enough stuff at any given time, but it also is the pressure to not run out of stuff at any given time. And it's not like you can just make, you know, if you're drilling on a land well with like, you know, a pad where you're going to drill five wells, normally you have a lot of room. You have a very fixed amount of space to work with. Yeah, no, that's true. It's
1: again, it's all about logistics, right? It's anytime you talk to someone who's worked offshore, it's like, oh, what's the biggest difference logistics? And so, you know, we can certainly dive deeper into that, which I think is good. So the first thing is, you know, before you do anything offshore, just like any other rig, you have to, you know, get stuff to location. Matt, how do we actually get things to location
0: out in, you know, miles and miles and miles and miles offshore? Well, it's not going to be trucks. I'm going to go with boats are your primary method of transportation. And it's kind of interesting because these boats are capable of carrying liquid mud. So they have tanks you can pump liquid mud over. The deck space, you put chemicals in what we call pallet boxes, or you might actually put them in or baskets, basically so they can be lifted by a crane onto the rig. And then everything else. I mean, everything else, if you know your mud lab might be shipped out as a container that's set out on a boat. It's usually already there and that kind of thing, but you may have, I just remember like small things. Let's say I needed more reagents. You know, there's no real good place to put them given the like scale and everything. So they might get thrown in a basket with drill pipe or other random things that are getting delivered. So you kind of have to fish around. And if you can't find what you were supposed to receive, you got to go look for it amongst other things that have nothing to do with what you do. But all of this stuff is getting sent out over a boat, whether it's your mud stuff or casing or any other equipment.
1: Yeah, no. And that was one thing that, and this is whether you're on a jackup or even offshore, but that was one thing I remember is you kind of gave your wish list to, you know, whether it was the clerk or the you know there's again different positions but you gave someone who is responsible for coordinating logistics on the rig here's my list of stuff that i'm getting i've got in touch with the you know the warehouse or my folks and then there's a i think it's called a manifest perhaps but there's a lot of work involved with like you know transferring information of what you need out there and you make sure you get it and there's a lot of documentation similar i guess you know like a delivery ticket you request product and then it comes into on location and you say oh yeah i received my product but like everything, like you said, like even reagents, like you need the smallest little thing for your mud lab. Yeah. You can't just call your field soup say, Hey, next time you're, can you stop by here and drop this off? It's you have to, whether you're ordering out chemicals or you're ordering out, I don't know, a box of tissue paper, like there's a similar process, right? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, and, you know, kind of to the point of communicating on what's on the manifest and that sort of thing, having to physically, you may be on the rig when the boat arrives, you may have to physically go down there you know, get in a basket, get on the deck and like physically confirm that what you need is there, especially if it won't all fit on the deck. And they're like, Hey, the boat's going to be here for a while. So we can use some product and empty that and then send it down and bring on, on the stuff you need on some really small rigs. That's been part of the challenge like, I was told it's here, but where is it really? And so it requires like moving down to a vessel and looking at stuff and talking to people and then going back up. And a lot of times they have no idea what you're looking for, unless like, does this tote say, you know, emulsifier on it? Right. Yeah. It's like, there's the part where it's like, okay, it's all on a list and it should all be here. And then you go physically try and find it. And it it can't just be like, Hey, over the radio, like, you know, take three steps over here. What do you see? Sometimes it's like, all right, I'm just gonna come down here and do this.
1: Yeah. Cause yeah, keep in mind the boat crew is not responsible for your stuff. I mean, they are to some degree, but they're just, they pull up to the dock, stuff gets loaded on, they, you know, check off whatever. And then, you know, it's not like they're mud representatives on the boat because like to AES, like we don't have a specific boat just for us. Like we share boats, (laughs) work boats, they call them. And so, yeah, again, it's, you could have every service company on the rig ordering stuff and it just so happens all to be on this one boat. So yeah, it can get a bit, you know, just, you gotta be super organized, you know, chemicals, know again liquid mud it's not the mud company's boats it's a they contract it out or whatever and yeah the interesting thing I never knew that when I went going offshore was these huge boats and I don't know they could be not quite the length of a football field but it's you know they're big boats and they have huge it's like a boat with a full tank system like a mud pit system inside you know the back of the boat and yeah they can mix you know they can roll it they can pump it out up onto the rig. But for liquid mud that's typically how you do it and matt similar to trucks on land like say vac trucks which are obviously limited with space but i would imagine it's the same with weight as well right like the boat can only hold so
0: much weight so the heavier the mud weight the less volume i mean it would be similar conceptually i mean my experience has been sometimes with really heavy mud weights we knew we couldn't pump it up and so uh, you would right send a certain mud weight just because of the column. And so you'd keep it limited and then pump up that mud weight. And then, you know, you could weight it up and it was never an issue pumping it down to sea level but getting it up there sometimes if you sort of knew the limits of the rig, you know, you had to be careful about that. So, and I mean, it's sort of interesting too, like you normally keep extra of everything on the rig, right? It's not like, oh gee, I'm about to run out of reagent X. Going back to my relief sucks, maybe, (laughs) but- but,
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was just thinking that.
0: You know, a lot of times you have like, two viscometers, you have extra retort, you know, you have two retorts. You're like, and so if one breaks, you send it back and you're like, I don't have a backup. That's what gets you antsy, even though these things, you know, you can normally go through a whole well and not have issues with that kind of equipment, but you start to figure out like the boat logistics stuff can sometimes be the easier part. It becomes the, I need a widget and I need it fast. And so it's like, okay, when is crew change? I know a boat has to come to do crew change. Can I get it on that boat? You know, just different things like that. Or, you know, even if you're not crew changing, but like, you know, the rig crew changes on a different day. Like, Hey, if they come every Thursday, can I like, let's make sure someone can physically hand it to somebody who's going on that boat. You make a lot of phone calls and try and find out, you know, through whomever, how can we deliver this, you know, effectively with the time we've got, but there's like the real big ticket, obvious stuff and making sure it's all there, but it usually should be. You just want to be certain, you know, exactly where it is. Yeah, And then there's the like some random thing that nobody's going to notice because it's not typically moved back and forth. Like, you know, a driller coming on and being like, I have no idea what is in this box, but like they gave it to me and told me to give it to you. you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And clearly the time we spent just talking about boats and logistics, it's, it's a huge part of it. But, you know, once we actually get product or, you know, liquid mud or, or whatever it is that we need to the rig, again, it's not like. You know, you pull up a floating forklift and you you unload it. Like it's quite the process trying to get it from, you know, 150 feet down on the water up onto the deck, Matt. So how do we go about getting stuff
0: off the boat onto the rig? I mean, crane operations are everything, right? And the interesting thing with crane operations is there are certain times, like when helicopters are coming that you can't have crane operations. There's other times when they're, you know, let's say they're offloading casing or something like that. Guess what? You're going to wait. And so like one of the first things is just managing your deck space of where are we going to put the stuff when I do get to offload it? And the thing is that may not be the final point. So we'll talk about the sack room in a minute, but you know, on a lot of deep water vessels, you have product laid out on the deck and that's how you receive it from the boat. And then when you need it, you lower it down to the sack room for mixing. So it's kind of like the deck is a staging area of pallet boxes and chemical totes and that sort of thing. And it's like, I would always try and lay out a chart basically from the crane operator's point of view, like in Excel, like some boxes, like I need a two. And so that would be like the closest road to the crane, you know, two over, like, please lower that to the sack room and just like kind of update that every time I did inventory. So I knew what to move. And a lot of the pallet boxes I dealt with had two pallets in each and they didn't always have the same chemical and you know, all that kind of thing. And then, of course, you want to send your empties back so you can bring on more stuff. You know, you never want to have anything you don't need sitting around on the deck. So there's all of that. And even landing things on the deck, you know, like emulsifier and wetting agent, you know, one thing you could do is if the deck was right above the pit room, there might be sometimes ways you could drop a hose from the deck down to pit room and you could crack a valve and just get a mud cup and measure the rate of, you know, additional wetting agent how fast you're circulating and drilling Yeah. as so you just crack that valve, which is, you know, a nice way to kind of, you know, not have to lift or move anything, but make sure it's put in the right position so you can do that. You know, there's a lot of organizing of just getting things on and off the boat. And then I mentioned getting it down to the sack room where it's like, okay, now I have it. I need to talk to everybody and figure out, is the crane going to be busy? Is the crane operator going to be available? when I actually need chemical down there, because it's not when I need to mix it. It's sometime this tower, I've got to work around everybody, you know? So, (laughs) yeah, it's a lot of
1: communicating with a lot of people who, you know, their job out there is not just to move chemical around, it's to move everything around. And so if you can imagine being on a rig and not having the ability to just drive a loader around and move stuff around at will, it's, you know, anytime you need to move something, you, you got to talk to the crane operator for the most part to lower it inside, you know, inside the pit room or whatever. And so yeah, respecting other people's times and planning ahead and even talking to the crane operator the day before, Hey, I've got some product coming on the workboat. You know, are you going to have time tomorrow afternoon to help me move some product around? Like you got to plan days in advance. A lot of times it's not like a truck shows up and then you call up to the rig floor. Hey, is, can someone hop in the loader and grab all these chemicals, you know, off this flatbed truck. It's, yeah, tomorrow I bring a product in product and Can I use the crane operator for you know a couple hours? And everyone wants because there's only a limited amount. I think you know on a again I never worked deep water, but on a jackup I think two maybe three cranes at the most. I mean, how many
0: cranes were on a deep water rig, Matt? Usually two. Whenever I was out there, we use one okay. for most things, mud chemicals at least. But yeah, I think the crane operator is another person you need to make nice with. That was always an interesting one because. A couple of more kind of characters, but I remember when I was overseas, this is a great war story of, you know, be nice to your crane operator. I would sit in the conference room at night and just watch DVDs or whatever. And this was in Indonesia. And there was a guy who would teach English classes to a lot of the guys on the rig crew. And he said, you know, there weren't that many foreigners or English speakers, but they wanted to learn English. And they said, "Could we practice with you? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, we can practice whenever you want. And so a lot of these guys would just, you know, run up to me in the middle of the night while I was on the pits or something and, you know, just ask me random questions about, you know, my siblings or like you're practicing a language, you know. Well, it turned out that I was basically in with the whole rig crew after that. <laughs> and so one day the stimulation company was trying to offload like huge lifts. You know, think about silos for frack sand and pumps and all that. And I asked to have a Wilden pump or a little, you know, a little peanut pump moved across the deck and they shut down the lift to move my diaphragm pump. And like all these guys from the simulation company came up like screaming at me, what are you doing? Like all this kind of thing. And I was like, I just said when they were available, like it was just, I got priority over everyone else, including in the middle of a transfer because I practiced English with these guys, you know, I was the one they wanted to help. So just it was sort of funny. I obviously never meant to disrupt operations, but you know, you make nice with a crane operator and you know you might not have to wait as long. Yeah, no, that's true. It's building strategic relationships. I mean, you should build relationships
1: with everyone, but fact of the matter is there's certain people who can really help you carry through a lot of your duties. And those are the folks you certainly want to make good relationships with. Yeah. So, you know, again, kind of going through the process here, you know, you get all your stuff on the boat, bring it to the rig, the crane lifts everything up, puts it on, you know, on the rig. And then, Matt, you mentioned sack room. Again, you know, offshore, a lot of stuff happens sort of beneath the rig floor and beneath the catwalk. And so you need to bring all your products down into the sack room, which is where the hopper is. And again, you need the crane. But, Matt, let's talk a little bit more
0: about the sack room. How would you describe it a little bit in more detail? So a sack room is a room that is never big enough for the mud chemicals you need. Normally a rig also stores a lot of spares and that sort of thing there. So you're always sort of fighting with the tool pusher for space because they want to, you know, keep their stuff there. So it usually, I mean, depending on how big it is, it might have some racks, but you basically lower stuff through a hatch onto this lower level. And then a forklift usually can take it near the hopper and for mixing and that sort of thing, but it's pretty tight quarters and you got to pick and choose what stays down there. So it's another tight space you've got to work with. And, you know, this is your like, these are the products I'm going to add regularly. And so I think we may discuss this a little bit more when we talk about liquid mud, but it's another incentive to try and have things premixed as liquids that you can pump over and add as little dry material as possible. You know, number one to limit lifting, but the other part is lowering these pallets down, not having much space and keep in mind like five pounds per barrel in a 6,000 barrel system is a lot of pallets. Yeah. Right. right? Like everything is bigger. And so if you can limit the amount of manual handling and that kind of thing, everybody's all for it. Right. That's so true. And you know, it's interesting because on land, you may have a few
1: folks, you know, a couple of roughnecks and stuff help you out, on the back end, you know, around the hopper, moving things around. But from my experience, having you know more people on the rig really helped you organize and you had folks mixing. I mean, Hickey even had, you know, a dedicated mixing hand a lot of times in the sack room, which was ex- extremely beneficial because again, like you had mentioned earlier on in the episode, offshore they're willing to spend more money to ensure the operations go smoothly, that you don't have any downtime. I mean, there's lots of downtime, but you know, in terms of, you know, a lot of times you're never shorthanded because they don't want to be waiting on something is because having another two or three guys on a rig is a lot cheaper than having, you know, four or five hours of downtime because you don't have enough hands to carry out different operations or duties. So yeah, having a, almost a dedicated mixing hand was super nice.
0: Yeah. And you'll see, I mean, the other thing is you'll see a lot of automated mixing, you know, sack cutters and other things. You can move big bags, like a lot of large capacity equipment that can help you know, limit how much you actually have to do manually, but you still need that supervision. And I assume it's gotten better since I was working in deep water, but we had all that like automated handling equipment and it was broken all the time and nobody knew how to fix it. So it was one of these, like, you sort of, it's sort of in the way you just looked at it. (laughs) It was sort of the running joke of like, you know, were we just better off leaving everything manual and having more space or you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, you do have a lot of help, but you still have to manage things. The good thing about if you have experienced people is they'll talk to you about, hey, I'm going to need another pallet of this soon to stick to your, you know, treatment sheet. Let's get with a crane operator. You know, the, the best rig crews, they're thinking ahead just like you are. And so it's all one big conversation where it's just like, hey, I heard we're bringing on casing for the next, you know, the next interval. So let's go figure out what our chemical situation is everybody kind of talks, we figure out what we're going to do next. You know, it's not like the boat is just sitting by the rig all the time either. It may be a couple hundred yards off. So if you, you got to bring it over, there's just, you know, a lot of moving parts and sometimes the boat leaves and they don't tell you. So (laughs) yeah, I've I've done that too.
1: That can happen because it'll leave at any wee hours of the night or morning. So yeah, always having a good idea of what's happening. And it's again, communication is at the utmost importance out there. So Matt, assuming we've got all our product down in the sack room and we're ready to, you know, everyone's mixing, treatments are going well. Again, we'll have to move some mud around at some point. How does that happen?
0: Well, I mean, it's a great thing about all these pumps, right? You can kind of figure out how long it's going to take to transfer different things. But, you know, offshore bases, you know, like fushon has a ton of them for the Gulf of Mexico, which is where I worked out of a lot. You mix everything in a plant. It's usually got really good mixing capabilities. Some of them even have like dedicated shearing units, which these things are like on the side of, you know, truck mounted. They're huge, but they help your product yield, which we've talked a little bit about in the past. And so you get your mud all prepared. It's usually in pretty good shape and you'll transfer it over to these vessels. And then of course you can pump it up from the deck, which mind you to raise a hose up requires another crane lift. So even though it's liquid and there's not as much work to do, The vessel has to stay alongside the rig, obviously, and you have to lift, you know, bring the hose you have to figure out where you're going to receive it on the rig. So sometimes it's only one pit that could take it. And it means you need to isolate that. Sometimes we would receive fluid and we would actually want it down in the pontoons, which meant there was only one pit that we could transfer fluid. We called it downstairs, but it meant basically you had to make sure your transfer rates kept up that the fluid you brought on matched how fast you could send it down. to wasn't hey. a huge deal. It was just something to keep an eye on. So anyways, the main thing is you're going to have multiple fluids to manage. So it may be that not every tank that comes out on the boat has the same mud weight. And it may even be that when you go to offload, there'll be a vessel standing by that already has some mud in it. They say, okay, we're going to pump on top of this one. And then we're going to put the other stuff here. There can definitely be situations like that. As I mentioned before, I mean, we do this on land rigs too sometimes, right? We don't just wait up dramatically, we'll use it, you know, we'll swap out heavier muds. But, you know, you mentioned the, did they roll the tanks? It's a big deal. You think about this boat rocking in the waves, how, you know, is that fluid going to be settled out or that sort of thing, especially if it's new mud from a plant. And so, and the other nightmare scenario I've been in is the boat captain can actually pump into these tanks to ballast or balance the vessel. And so I have definitely been hit with It was water-based mud that the boat captain pumped in seawater thinking no one would notice and then the mud i received was contaminated with (laughs) seawater it was really frustrating because it required a lot of mixing onshore or at the rig to deal with it but moving all that stuff around keeping track of it understanding the economics sometimes talking to the customer of like hey it's actually cheaper to send this back and weight this up or you know what have you so you're always kind of trying to think ahead with your volumes and then the other thing is dead volumes. So you might load up with a certain amount of mud, but you may not actually be able to pump all of that out of a tank. So a lot of times like diaphragm pumps can be your best friend because you can use that to pump the rest out, transferred into another pit that you're pumping out of. And so you're only left with the dead volume in one of the pits, but kind of between trying to get everything out and then also saying it's okay when I want to return fluid, like this can go on top of this, you know, and making sure it goes in the right place when you're on a radio or or that sort of thing. It's always challenging. And it's another separate form of volume accounting. So you might have some storage tanks on the rig. You have your active system. You might have some isolated pits and then you've got to track volumes that are actually on the boat and Sometimes it makes sense to go down to the boat and physically, you know, check for yourself, make sure everybody understands what's supposed to be down there and where it's supposed to be. So it's just another critical aspect of volume accounting that you don't have onshore. That's right. No, it's,
1: again, I, anyone who's listening is probably thinking, wow, you know, if, if you haven't worked offshore, it's like, oh, there's so much to, you know, take care of and so much to track. Well, keep in mind too, they always run two mud engineers, two 12-hour towers and so you have a little bit of help and, you know, oftentimes it was sort of divide and conquer, you know, depending on what you had going on. And, you know, you could even talk to really say, Hey, I'm going to really, you know, I'm going to make sure I strap this or check these volumes. Okay. Well, I'll always make sure and do X, Y, Z, or, you know, it's a collective effort on all fronts, but at the end of the day, you have another individual to bounce
0: ideas or to strategize with, or to. I have one other thing. I almost forgot. Okay. I mentioned earlier that you try and pump as much as you can. So you might not actually have base oil on the boat and you might not actually even ship calcium chloride necessarily. You probably do have calcium chloride, like if you have to make whole mud, mm. but the other thing you do a lot is you'll send out premix, which will basically be like a 90, 10 oil water ratio, unweighted dilution volume that's rich with emulsifier, wetting agent, like everything you need. And you just pump that in at a certain rate while you're drilling, and a lot of your treatment gets done that way. And I do not want to forget it just because that's another like key piece that limits all your handling and the fighting in the sack room and all that kind of stuff. And so that's another thing you're dealing with boats on as well because if you bank on it getting there and it's not there, that changes your whole program on the rig. So another thing to think about, but mud movement, boat movements, tanks. I mean, like you said, Justin, it's a lot about communication and staying on top of your business. And you do have a lot of help, but it doesn't mean you can sit back and watch while other people make plans around you. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And it's, you know, everyone's
1: expected to come up with solutions. And, you know, again, as mud engineers, you you hold a lot of responsibility, both on land and offshore, but there's certainly a little bit more to consider when you're off on the water. Nat, and, and then... I mean, have you heard of people transporting things on helicopters? That's again, working where I did offshore. We never had access to helicopters and nor did we travel to the rig on a helicopter, but is that a thing or?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think there could be, you know, critical pieces of equipment that you can get on the helicopter. The main thing is there are certain things that aren't approved for flight, right? You're not going to send, you know, your xylene IPA mix to break your emulsion for oil-based mud. That's not going on a helicopter. you know, so they're especially chemicals. They're not going to let you travel, transport. So, you know, the nice thing is if you do have regular helicopter flights, like twice a week or something, it's obviously a really fast way to get something if you catch it correctly, but you have to make sure everything is approved for flight. You know, that's all going to get reviewed. You're not just, you know, you're not just getting away with anything. And so don't try and just bring something in your bag. You have to if it's not a personal item that you have to make sure it is approved by everybody. But I've had, you know, I'm trying to remember, but I think maybe we had like a retort cell or something brought it on a helicopter once and you know, we just had to make sure everybody was okay with it. Sure.
1: That's it. And you know, again, I'm sure there's different scenarios or different takes on how you get things to and from the rig. And yeah, sometimes you can't think of it all, Matt, but I think we did a pretty good job of covering, you know, just overall deep water logistics and offshore logistics I don't have any other questions, Matt, or stories to tell. Do you have any closing last words on deep water
0: logistics? I mean, I think if you try and compare the two things, like there's creativity with lots of help offshore. So you're limited to whatever's already there and in hopes of something coming, but people do everything they can, even if you made a mistake to try and keep the operation going. On land, it's you're creative with less help per se, but more opportunities to get things. You know, and so it's just, it's kind of funny. Like I definitely will. So speaking of awesome relief, we did run out of our xylene IPA mix, you know, for a mud check. And I was walking around the rig, just trying to think of anything. And I got with the can, and we just walked around like, surely there's some solvents around here that we could at least try before we run out. And what we did was we ended up going to the mechanic and they have like a little paint shop. And so we tested the different solvents that like paint thinner and stuff like that. And we found one that matched what we were getting or got close enough that we had a good idea of what the titration would be to break the emulsion for our oil-based mud check. And then we were able to, I don't know, next couple of days, a boat came and looked and looked all over the rig and still couldn't find this stuff that was supposed to have arrived. And sure enough, the can was in a pipe basket you know, (laughs) kind of like just tangled in with a bunch of other stuff. Right. And so, you know, it probably didn't transport that way. It was probably just like taken off the boat deck and like, Hey, don't forget this. But nobody told us. And when you asked anybody, Hey, did this come on? Nobody knew what it was. And so nobody could say anything. You had to physically walk through everything that was received from that boat and shuffle through and find it. So (laughs) deep water logistics.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And well, you heard it here first, everybody. And you know, it's again, if you have any questions or thoughts, if you have any stories to tell, again, I know there's a ton out there. So please, I encourage everyone that's listening to engage with us. If you could leave a review, hit us up on LinkedIn. If you have any questions, share the episode with anyone who you may find that would be interested in hearing about it. Also, we have an email address. If you'd like to email us, it'd be a little bit more, you know, conventional, if you will. It's at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. And with that said, everyone, appreciate the support. Until next time.
0: Y'all take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.